0: hello and welcome to the verity podcast for tuesday january 9th 2024 the only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin
1: i'm adam clark and i'm eric steiner here's a look at today's top stories congressional negotiators agreed to a 1.6 trillion dollar 2024 spending cap NASA's first moonlander launch in decades suffers a rocky start. The U.S. grounds Boeing 737s after a door falls off mid-flight. German football star Franz Beckenbauer dies at aged 78. Bangladesh's Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina is re-elected. Anthony Blinken meets with Middle Eastern leaders. Multiple explosions rock Ukraine following renewed Russian attacks. The Supreme Court rejects X's
0: challenge to disclose surveillance requests.
1: Lloyd Austin faces scrutiny
0: over a secretive hospital stay. And mass killer Anders Breivik sues Norway over his prison isolation. In
1: our top story, congressional negotiators reach an agreement on the 2024 government spending. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press. From the office of the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries, and the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Leaders of both the Republican Majority, U.S. House of Representatives, and the Democrat-held Senate announced on Sunday that they had reached an agreement on federal spending in the 2024 fiscal year. Within an internal letter, House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, has described the top-line agreement as a, quote, good deal for conservatives, claiming, quote, real spending cuts for fiscal year 2024, as well as the potential to, quote, save taxpayers more than $200 billion over the next 10 years. Johnson places the 2024 budget at approximately $1.6 trillion, including $704 billion in funding for non-defense and $886 billion committed to, quote, national defense needs. In addition to cuts agreed upon within the Fiscal Responsibility Act, the top-line agreement further includes a $10 billion additional reduction to Internal Revenue Service personnel, and $6.1 billion in cuts to COVID slush fund accounts while committing to a 5.2 percent military pay increase. In a joint press release, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, and House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, claimed the agreement, quote, clears the way for Congress to maintain important funding priorities while, quote, addressing many of the major challenges home and abroad. Following the agreement, appropriation bills must be passed in both the House and the Senate for federal departments, including Agriculture, Transportation, Energy, Veterans Affairs, and others to receive funding past January 19th, and all remaining departments, including Defense and Homeland Security, passed February 2nd.
0: Thank you, Eric, for laying out the facts on our first story today. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with a Republican narrative provided by Washington Examiner. Mike Johnson still has a bit to go if he is to pass his bipartisan spending bill through the House. While hardline conservatives in the party will likely seek concessions on border security in turn for an unsatisfactory spending cap, compromise will have to remain the central theme of negotiations if the federal government is to avoid a shutdown. Funding deadlines are fast approaching. The recently elected speaker now must prove why he has the skills to thread the needle for the GOP.
1: We follow that with a Democratic narrative coming from Politico. The deal is a win for Democrats, avoiding the original drastic cuts that Johnson and the far right of the Republican Party have long sought after. Spending will consequently be kept at a steady rate if the agreement can make its way through Congress in the shape of 12 appropriation bills, a task easier said than done in the face of the House Freedom Caucus's inevitable protests. Attention must now hastily turn towards making the America-friendly deal a reality for the benefit of everyone.
0: And our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community are going to share their first statistical-based nerd narrative with us. They think that there's a 50% chance that the U.S. government spending to GDP will be at least 40.2% for 2024.
1: I saw no line items for Eric and Adam in there.
0: What, what's going on, man? I thought we were going to be included in this budget. You know, we're, we're part of the, the 7.4 funding for non-military stuff. That's ah. that's where we come in. That's where you get your little donkey cart. That's right. And I signed up for the Popsicle cart. I tell you what,
1: man. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun this summer. That's all I'm saying.
0: The NASA moon lander suffers a critical loss of propellant. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Guardian, Sky News, and Politico. Following its launch on Monday, NASA's new lunar lander reportedly suffered a critical loss of propellant, discovered after it was unable to orient itself toward the sun and charge its batteries due to a propulsion system failure. The launch of the lander, built by Pittsburgh-based Astrobotic Technology, comes over 51 years after NASA's last Apollo mission. According to Astrobotic, the company was able to re-establish communication with the spacecraft after a short blackout, and an improvised maneuver successfully reoriented the moon lander, known as Peregrine. They added that they were working to try and stabilize this loss, while assessing what alternative mission profiles may be feasible at this time. Peregrine was originally scheduled to attempt a touchdown on Sinus Viscositatus, also called the Bay of Stickiness, on February 23rd though it is now unclear if this will go forward. Only India and China have made successful soft moon landings in the 21st century, while Japan's Moon Sniper may land later this month. The mission is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLPS, initiative, which involves incentivizing U.S. companies to send their scientific experiments and technologies to the moon in order to develop a lunar economy and provide low-cost transport. Peregrine will also carry human remains to the moon. This has sparked opposition from the Navajo Nation of Native Americans, who consider the moon their sacred space and have described the act as, quote, desecration. The Peregrine mission will lay the road for NASA's manned lunar mission by the end of the decade. The space agency has stated that it also plans to land the first woman and first person of color on the moon. We begin
1: our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Technology Review.
0: 2024
1: will see a series of attempts made by NASA to once again reach the moon, hopefully culminating in manned missions. The long term plan is to settle human beings on Earth's only natural satellite, making it the stepping stone for ventures into deep space. While the financial viability of such ambitions, especially for private parties, remains unclear, it is hoped that some form of, quote, lunar commercial economy will evolve as a
0: result of these initiatives. And we've got a Narrative B to continue the spin from CentralMain.com. The very fact that no one has tried to travel to the moon since 1972 must tell us something. It is a non-viable, pointless exercise. NASA has already spent more than $40 billion on its Artemis moon mission and will likely rack up greater costs than even this staggering figure. NASA's plans have no real value to most people on Earth. We need to do more to improve things on this planet instead of trying slingshots elsewhere. As expected, the nerds from
1: Metaculus are chiming in with their narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that the next human being will walk on the moon by November of the year 2028. Dibs. You got it? I got it. All right. I called dibs. Okay. I called dibs. All right,
0: dibs. fine. Good. Well, how do you call call shotgun uh, on the rocket? On the rocket, uh, it is... Is it like once you step off the elevator, like walking towards it, or is it before you I call
1: flux capacitor.
0: Oh, man.
1: Yes. The United States grounds Boeing 737s after a door falls off mid-flight. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNBC, Fox News, and New York Times. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, has announced the grounding of 171 Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircrafts after part of an Alaska Airlines plane on Friday fell off mid-flight. Passengers stated that shortly after takeoff, a large chunk of the plane's outer shell, as wide as a refrigerator, fell to the ground. The FAA has also ordered the, quote, immediate inspections of all MAX 9s worldwide. Further passengers on board Alaska Airlines Flight 1282, which intended to reach Ontario, California, before turning back to Portland, Oregon, stated that the force resulting from the detachment of the flight's door plug ripped headrests and seat backs out of the cabin, blew open the cockpit door, and took off the first officer's headset. The National Transportation Safety Board announced on Sunday that a man had found the door plug in his backyard in Portland. Alaska Airlines paused use of 18 MAX 9s on Saturday and canceled 163, or 21 percent of its flights on Sunday. United Airlines, a second U.S.-based airline using the aircraft, also canceled 230, or 8 percent of its scheduled flights on Sunday. Among the foreign companies that have grounded MAX 9s are Panama's Copa Airlines, Aeromexico, and Turkish Airlines. MAX 9s include an optional extra door to complete the approved number of evacuation paths if airlines choose to install the maximum number of seats. If a plane does not max out the number of seats, quote, door plugs are used to offer flexible layouts. No passengers were sitting adjacent to the door plug, which malfunctioned in this incident. According to the National Transport Safety Board Chairwoman Jennifer Homendy, the plane used for flight 1282 had not been used for long flights over water recently due to a pressurization warning light on three previous flights. Homendy added that Alaska's maintenance team was ordered to investigate the warning light and their work had not finished before Friday's flight. It has not been confirmed if the warning light was connected to Friday's incident. This follows the FAA's call on Boeing last month to inspect its MAX models regarding a potential loose bolt in rudder control systems. A different Boeing's 737 MAX model was grounded in 2019 following two crashes,
0: killing all those on both flights. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We're going to start our spins with a narrative A provided by the post millennial. While thankfully only causing minor injuries, the potential risk involved in the incident that occurred on Alaska Airlines flight should be discussed from a worst-case scenario perspective. Since the door plug blew out only minutes into flight, everyone was still buckled. But if it had blown out over a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, this could have been a fatal tragedy. An intensive investigation needs to take place. Follow that up with Narrative B coming from
1: NBC7 San Diego. While no one can doubt the horror of such an incident, particularly for those on board, the FAA and the airlines it oversees have taken every safety measure possible to investigate this matter and fix issues. When the 737 MAX 9 is back in the air, passengers should feel safe in knowing that their aircraft has been thoroughly inspected. For now, the only worry anyone should have is over
0: potential flight delays. And the nerds have another opinion. They think that there's a 5% chance that commercial passengers will routinely fly in pilotless planes by 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous prediction community. Soccer icon Franz Beckenbauer passes away at age 78. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW.com, Football History, and BBC News. The family of Franz Beckenbauer has revealed to the media company Deutsche Press Agentur that the former German footballer and manager passed away on Sunday at the age of 78. Born on September 11, 1945, Beckenbauer played for Bayern Munich from 1964 to 1977, Hamburg SV from 1980 to 82, and the New York Cosmos from 1977 to 1980 and 1983 to 1984. The defender also represented the West German national team in 103 matches. Beckenbauer won four Bundesliga titles and three consecutive European Cups with Bayern Munich, while also winning the league title once more with Hamburg. Beckenbauer is the only person in soccer history to have both captained in 1974 and managed in 1990 the victorious World Cup teams, managing West Germany from 1984 to 1990 and Olympique de Marseille from 1990 to 1991, and Bayern Munich from 1993 to 94, and in 1996. The two-time Ballon d'Or, an annual soccer award, winner managed his national team between 1984 to 1990. In 2016, FIFA's Ethics Committee opened a corruption investigation into a 6.7 million euro, roughly 7.45 million US dollars, a payment in relation to Germany's award of the 2006 World Cup, an incident alleged to have involved Beckenbauer while he sat as vice president of the German Football Association between 1998 to 2010. Thanks for the facts,
1: Adam. The first spin is Narrative A coming from The Guardian, a titan of soccer history, Beckenbauer completed the sport both on the pitch and on the touchline. The complete soccer player, much of his time on the pitch looked effortless, while his statesmanlike aura earned him the nickname Der Kaiser or the Emperor. Although Germany's corruption allegations concerning the 2006 World Cup cannot be forgotten, it will take more than accusations without verdict to blemish the legacy of one of the greatest of all time.
0: That's going to be followed up with a narrative B provided by the Daily Mail. Despite potentially being Germany's greatest ever player, the latter years of Beckenbauer's life were rife with scandal and sadness. Following the passing of his son and allegations of corruption, the former soccer legend's health noticeably deteriorated. Despite being a serial winner for so many years, Beckenbauer's final years away from the spotlight were tragic and painted the picture of a complex and sometimes challenging human interest story. Sheikh Hasina wins
1: another term in the Bangladesh election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, The Wire, The Indian Express, and Reuters. Bangladesh's Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has been re-elected after her Awami League party and its allies won 223 of 300 parliamentary seats in Sunday's election. With a boycott from the main opposition party, independent candidates secured a total of 63, while the Jatia party, the third largest in the country, got 11 seats. According to the country's election commission, the voter turnout was about 40%. In comparison, the last election in the country of about 170 million people had a voter turnout of nearly 80%. Hasina, who first became Bangladesh's prime minister in 1996 and has been in power since her re election in 2009, is the daughter of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, the founding father of Bangladesh, who was killed in an army coup in 1975. This will be Hasina's fifth term serving as prime minister and fourth consecutive term. The main opposition Bangladesh Nationalist Party had boycotted the polls after Hasina refused its demands to resign and follow a neutral government to oversee the vote. In the months leading up to the general election, hundreds of thousands of activists have reportedly been detained. There have also been allegations of the Awami League Party
0: fielding fake candidates on the ballot. Eric, thank you for the facts. The left narrative spin for this story is going to be by Al Jazeera. While she will govern Bangladesh again, the facade of a stable Hasina government can't mask the intensifying political strife, economic crisis, human rights abuses, and the stifling of dissent. Hasina's fifth total term will, at best, lead to de facto one-party rule in Bangladesh rather than end the political deadlock or restore democracy.
1: The right narrative comes from India today. In the past 15 years, Sheikh Hasina has turned around Bangladesh's economy, which has tripled the country's per capita income and lifted over 25 million people out of poverty. Her fifth term will provide much-needed political stability for Bangladesh, which spun into turmoil following
0: COVID and a global economic shutdown. Blinken meets with Middle East leaders amid regional tension. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The New York Times, Guardian, Associated Press, Reuters, The Times of Israel, and The Hill. On Monday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited the UAE and Saudi Arabia to discuss the humanitarian situation in Gaza the need to prevent the war from escalating into a full-scale regional conflict, and the U.S.'s commitment to securing lasting regional peace that ensures Israel's security and advances the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. After meeting with the UAE's leader, Blinken met with the Saudi crown prince, hoping to revive discussions over normalizing diplomatic relations with Israel. Blinken is expected to visit Israel soon. The visit is the fourth to the region to be made by Blinken in three months. It comes as Israel-Hezbollah clashes intensify. Yemen's Iran-backed Houthis attack Red Sea commercial ships, and Tehran-backed militant groups target the U.S.'s Iraqi bases. Blinken's visit comes as two U.S. senators said on Saturday after visiting the Rafah crossing on the Gaza-Egyptian border that Israeli procedures to inspect aid entering the Strip were cumbersome and seemingly arbitrary, calling the system to ensure that aid deliveries within Gaza don't get hit by Israeli forces totally broken. Elsewhere, an Israeli strike on Monday killed Hezbollah commander Wissam al-Tawil, deputy head of a unit in the group's elite Radwan force. He was in a car struck by Israeli fire in the village of Majdal Selm, near the border with Israel al-Tawil was one of the most senior Hezbollah commanders killed since the war began three months ago. More than 130 Hezbollah fighters have been killed since October 7th. Israel's defense minister said on Sunday that Israel isn't afraid to go to war with Hezbollah in Lebanon, as the country is fighting an Axis, not a single enemy. Hezbollah on Saturday launched its largest barrage of rockets into northern Israel since the war began, with Blinken reaffirming the U.S.'s commitment to Israel's security. He added that Israel wasn't interested in an escalation with Hezbollah, but was fully prepared to defend themselves. In other developments, Al Jazeera reported that Hamza Dadao, the son of Wail Al Dadao, a prominent Al Jazeera journalist, was killed in southern Gaza alongside a colleague. Mustafa Tharaya, Wail ad dadao has become particularly well-known to viewers across the Middle East after learning live on air that his wife, son, daughter, and grandson were killed in an Israeli airstrike in the first month of the war. Hamza is Wail's first family member to die from an Israeli strike.
1: Adam, thanks for those facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Politico. The U.S. is doing everything it can to both ensure that Israel can eliminate Hamas's military capabilities and prevent regional escalation. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks, whether from Gaza or elsewhere, and is taking the right steps to wind down its military operations in Gaza, as it is not in the U.S. or Israel's best interest to see the conflict escalate. Nevertheless, the U.S. is prepared to defend its allies in the region and deter threats to regional and global security. Blinken is working hard to advance this
0: strategy. That's going to be countered with the pro-Israel narrative provided by Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas and restore deterrence with Iran and its proxy, Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a terrorist army with far greater military capabilities than Hamas, and Israel cannot allow its citizens residing in the north to live under the constant threat of terrorist attacks. The UN resolution that ended the 2006 war with Hezbollah has failed to ensure Israel's security, and if some sort of new arrangement is not made, Israel will be forced to intervene. Likewise in Gaza, Hamas's military capabilities must be eliminated to ensure Israel's security. Middle
1: East Eye provides the pro-Palestine narrative. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas or Hezbollah, but against the Palestinian and Lebanese people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Israel is killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate and clearly wants to make the Gaza Strip unlivable. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely.
0: Al-Ma'edin is going to continue the spin with a narrative D. Hezbollah will deal with Israel's belligerent and aggressive behavior at a time it deems most advantageous, as the Lebanese resistance does not just react to security incidents but makes painstaking calculations to both deter Israel from violating Lebanon's sovereignty and avoid an unnecessary and destructive conflict. Israel's leadership should keep in mind that Hezbollah is more than ready for an all out war and can inflict serious losses. Israel, backed by the U.S., is committing atrocious crimes in Gaza, to which Hezbollah has been forced to respond. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd
1: narrative as well. They say there's a 6% chance that at least one of Egypt, Jordan, or Lebanon will be at war with Israel on May 31st, 2024. Multiple explosions rock Ukraine after a renewed Russian attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine's Kapravda, the Kiev Independent, and TASS. Ukraine has once again come under Russian attack, with multiple explosions reported across a number of cities and regions on Monday. Ukraine's Air Force said Russia launched a total of 59 aerial weapons, including 51 missiles of different varieties and eight Shahid Kamikaze drones. It added that all eight drones were shot down. However, of the missiles, only 18 were brought down, the Air Force said. Explosions were reported in the regions of Kharkiv, Dnipropetrovsk, Kamilnitsky, and Zaporizhia. At least four civilians were killed and more than 30 people were reported injured at this stage. Russia's defense ministry said the attack targeted military sites, saying, This morning a multiple attack was delivered against Ukraine's defense facilities with high-precision, heavy air and sea-based weapons, including a Kinzhal hypersonic missile. The defense ministry also said that during the attack, an air-delivered Fab-250 bomb, quote, departed non-standardly, leading to a blast in the Russian-controlled region of Luhansk near the city of Rubizhna. Officials said there were no reports of injuries and security forces were working on disposing of explosive material from the incident. Meanwhile, the defense ministry further stated that it shot down a Ukrainian missile over the Belgorod region on Monday. It said the attack was conducted using an S-200 air defense missile that was repurposed for strikes on ground targets. The defense ministry also said it shot down five Mars rockets and 14 drones over the Russian-controlled
0: regions of Luhansk and Donetsk. Thanks for the facts and the update on the situation in Ukraine, Eric. Ukrainska Pravda is going to start off with a pro-Ukraine narrative. Russia is continuing to ramp up its attacks against Ukraine's civilian population. By continuing to indiscriminately target civilians, the Kremlin is clearly violating the principles of international law and should be punished. The pro-Russia narrative comes
1: from TASS. As Russia has said time and again, it does not target civilians in its attacks on Ukraine. All attacks are targeted at military sites and related infrastructure facilities, and Moscow takes this issue seriously.
0: In the Metaculous prediction, communities get to chime in with a the narrative they think that there's a 38% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before the year 2030. The Supreme Court denies hearing X's First Amendment case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Saltwire, Red, Redright, and Verge. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday declined to hear X's appeal of a lower court ruling against disclosing government data requests, X had argued that it was critical that the Supreme Court take the case to establish standards for when and how tech companies can speak about government requests to surveil user data. The company, then Twitter, began its first legal action on the issue in 2014, a year after Edward Snowden leaked details about the U.S. government's secret telecom surveillance. The government then ruled that companies could report demands from agencies like the FBI, but only in wide ranges rather than exact numbers. In 2015, Congress passed a law to allow tech companies to be more transparent, but that too limited them to a range of as little as 100 to as much as 1,000 national security inquiries. In its lawsuit, Twitter said it wanted to disclose the exact number of requests within a prior six-month period. The company sent a draft report to the FBI before suing, but the agency replied by saying the content of the report was classified and could not be unveiled. Since then, a trial judge has dismissed X's lawsuit. The San Francisco-based Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the decision in March of 2023, and now the Supreme Court has declined to hear the case. After the appeals court decision, which ruled the request, quote, would risk making foreign adversaries aware of what is being surveilled and what is not being surveilled, the American Civil Liberties Union called it disappointing and dangerous. X, in a statement, said it would substantially erode previous First Amendment precedents. Adam, thanks for the
1: facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Justia Law. There is nothing more to be said following previous court rulings. Agencies such as the FBI have deemed certain data requests classified because their disclosure would jeopardize national security. The fact that there are documents even X wasn't allowed to see as a plaintiff shows how sensitive they were. The government doesn't take such action lightly, but when they do, companies
0: need to understand the gravity of government data requests. The Establishment Critical Narrative is provided by Twitter Transparency Center. X has been trying to combat government secrecy and data breaches since before it was called X. Unfortunately for the 69% of the request it complied with, X was mandated by federal law. However, when the U.S. government previously asked to wiretap Twitter users, the company declined, citing violation of the law. The US FBI, DOJ, and the Secret Service make up a disproportionate amount of global government data requests. This is a violation of free speech and authoritarian surveillance that X will continue to fight. The nerds at Metaculus say
1: there's a 50% chance that the market capitalization of Twitter will be at least 22.3 billion on January 1, 2025. The Pentagon chief faces scrutiny over a secretive hospital stay. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, BBC News, Daily Caller, NBC and Associated Press. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is reportedly facing intense scrutiny over keeping President Joe Biden and senior members of the White House uninformed about the extent of his multi-day hospitalization at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center last week. He was admitted to the medical center on New Year's Day, reportedly due to, quote, complications following a recent elective medical procedure. However, according to sources, Biden wasn't informed of his hospitalization until Thursday evening. The 70-year-old Austin, who is second in the chain of command for the U.S. military after Biden, accepted responsibility for the delay in the notification. He stated that he could have done a better job to ensure that the public was appropriately informed. The Pentagon stated on Sunday that Austin, who remains in the hospital but resumed his full duties on Friday, was rushed to intensive care about one week after returning home on December 23rd, with Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General C.Q. Brown Jr. being notified on January 2nd. Questioned why this hospitalization, which included four days in the ICU, was kept secret. Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder claimed that this was, quote, an evolving situation in which they had to assess a variety of variables, including Austin's privacy. Senator Roger Wicker, Republican of Mississippi, the highest-ranking Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, accused the Department of Defense of deliberately withholding Austin's medical condition for days, calling it to provide lawmakers with a, quote, full accounting of
0: the facts immediately. Eric, thank you for the facts. The Republican narrative on this story is brought to us by Fox News. The Biden administration had a major chain of command failure here. Amid tensions in the Middle East, it's unfathomable that Austin's hospitalization was hidden for at least three days. The Department of Defense must come clean about what exactly prevented one of the country's two national command authorities from carrying out his duties, especially when he is required to be present at a moment's notice to respond to any national security crisis. Congress must investigate this further. Washington Post has the Democratic narrative. Austin has taken full
1: responsibility for not disclosing his condition sooner, and though he is still hospitalized, he has resumed his duties there could be a myriad of reasons, including hospital space considerations and his privacy as to why his absence was kept a secret. All details about his medical procedure, how serious it was, and how and when his responsibilities were delegated will be released as soon as possible. The Biden administration
0: still has full confidence in its Secretary of Defense. And the nerds think that there's a 25% chance that Joe Biden will be impeached by the House of Representatives. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Uh, I, I heard he had an issue with, a, with his eyesight. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he just couldn't see himself reporting into work. <laughs> and our final story today, a mass killer brevik sues Norway over prison isolation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, France 24, Fox News, Euronews, and Daily Mail. Anders Breivik, the neo-Nazi mass murderer who killed 77 people in two separate attacks in Oslo and on the island of Utøya on 2011, has sued the Norwegian state on the grounds that his years-long isolation violates his human rights. Expecting to take the stand on Tuesday, Breivik attended court on Monday but remained silent, His legal team launched a bid to end his prison isolation and lift restrictions on his correspondence with the outside world, claiming that Breivik had been suffering from deep depression and no longer wants to live. Lawyer Osten Storvik detailed that his client, who had been serving a 21-year jail sentence that can be extended for as long as he is deemed a threat, reportedly takes Prozac to get through his days in the Ringereich Prison. His human interaction is mostly limited to contact with professionals. Meanwhile, Norway's Justice Ministry has rejected allegations that his prison conditions breached the European Convention on Human Rights, with government lawyer Andreas Heitland stressing that several relaxations have been made in the restrictions to which Breivik is subject. Breivik, also known as Jotolf Hansen, after he underwent a name change, has been held in solitary confinement in a two-story complex with a kitchen, dining room, and TV room with an Xbox and multiple armchairs, a fitness room with weights, treadmill, and rowing machine. Three parakeets also fly within the facility. This isn't the first time that Brivik has sued the country on the same grounds, though an Oslo district court ruled in his favor in 2016 declaring that his isolation violated his rights. The Norwegian state's appeal was successful in higher courts. In 2018, the European Court of Human Rights dismissed the case
1: as inadmissible. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Business Insider. Though the claim that his near-complete isolation has taken a psychological toll on him seems to be plausible, it must be noted that Breivik has a long record of absurd complaints about his life in prison, including desiring better video games. He has been living in a luxurious prison cell despite his heinous crimes, and yet he acts as if the nation owes him everything.
0: The spin's going to continue with a narrative B provided by The Conversation. Constitutional democracies must always uphold the rule of law and remain committed to protecting fundamental human rights, even if that benefits a horrific mass murderer like Breivik or any other terrorist or convicted criminal. In fact, it's exactly the way that European nations treat them that indicates what kind of political community Europe wants to be.
1: The nerds of Metaculus say there's an 8% chance that the U.S. and the EU, or one of its member states, will cut diplomatic ties before 2051. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. Each day,
0: we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives
1: where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.News and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.